So this is a conversation with Mohammed Sleiman. He's a Palestinian writer and researcher who grew up in Gaza and currently works at the University of South Australia. The core of our conversation was Mohammed's two essays for Hamas for Thought. The first one, written in 2016, is entitled Ratchet of the Earth, Thoughts on Syria, Palestine and Discourse. And the second one, written in 2017, was called Israel and the Right to Maim. Among the many topics that we discussed is uh, him growing up in Gaza and surviving the Israeli wars and blockade, his and his partner's difficult journey to Australia, himself via Israel and herself via Egypt, the Western left's failures on Syria and Bosnia as well as its relationship to Palestine, the dehumanization of Palestinians and Syrians, Israel's politics of domination, Israel's right to maim as inherent to colonial logic, and Palestinians being asked to show gratitude by self-appointed saviors. As you can imagine, this wasn't an easy conversation to have, but I for one was really glad that I could have it with Muhammad, and I think you'll find it interesting as well. So as usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireThesetimes, and if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon or BuyMeACoffee.com, and you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and BuyMeACoffee has both options. And if you cannot donate, you can still help by reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. My name is uh, Mohammed Suleiman. Uh, um, um, I, I currently work at the uh, University of South Australia, uh, where I am based uh, in South Australia. Um, I came to Australia in 2015 to do my PhD in sociology, um, which I finished earlier this year. And uh, before that, obviously, I'm Palestinian from Gaza uh, or, you know, from somewhere in 1948, Palestine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, called Ilgia, which is a small village uh, close to um, or is part of Ashkelon or what is really is called Ashkelon mm. and um, yeah um, I, uh, I before I came to Australia I worked for a human rights organization in Gaza um, I did some journalism and I spent a year in London where I did my master's um, in human rights. Uh, my first degree is in English literature. Uh, yeah, uh, that's it. Amazing. So we'll start with an essay that you wrote in 2016, which is entitled uh, Wretched of the Earth, Thoughts on Syria, Palestine and Discourse. And this was published on Hamas for Thought, uh, which is a, a blog that I've been running for some years now. And I will read a quote here, which is just at the beginning of the text uh, for some people to kind of get the, the gist of, of what we'll be talking about in, in this first part of the conversation. And so I'm quoting now. What happens in Syria is of a great concern to all of us, albeit for different reasons. My concern for Syria is the loss of hundreds of thousands of civilian lives and, no less important, the way my identity as a Palestinian is constantly dragged into it to justify this bloodbath and undermine the struggle of Syrians. It's been four years since you've, since you've written this. Obviously, the, the gist, unfortunately, you could have written it today and it would have been just as relevant, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can you explain for, for, you know, for listeners who may not know the details um, why this, was a, this is and was such a sensitive and important topic to you and what is, what is it about? Yeah, I mean, as... Um... Um, I state in that uh, piece um, that I wrote uh, for Homos for Thought, um, the issue basically is that 
the discourse around the Syrian revolution since the very beginning in March 2011, or correct me if I'm wrong, there has been a lot of um, attempts, probably almost orchestrated in order to um, delegitimize the struggle of, of Syrians for um, obviously freedom, for um, democracy, for all the ideals that we are always taught to embrace mm -hmm. and uh, promote and practice. But obviously, um, the attempt to delegitimize the Syrian struggle was unfortunately based on uh, the relationship between the Syrian regime uh, and, and the Palestinian people. And the narrative goes that the Syrian regime is uh, a champion of Palestinian rights, of Palestinian uh, liberation, mm -hmm. and that it has a normalized relations with Israel, blah, blah, blah. We all know that stuff. So, yeah. And therefore, I felt um, that there was a need for uh, a voice from within um, the, you know, uh, Palestinian, I'll, I'll try and refrain, you know, from using particular terminology, but from within Palestinian civil society itself in, mm -hmm. in order to um, air the general feeling amongst uh, the lay Palestinian, amongst, um, you know, the actual uh, everyday Palestinians that you meet, uh, you know, uh, anywhere in Palestine or, you know, around the world. Obviously, people are always divided. So you will always have people who, um, you know, side with the Syrian regime or others right. who, you know, will um, support the Palestinian struggle. But the issue for me is that there was almost, uh, like I said, um, um, hegemonic narrative that uh, there is something unique about the, the Syrian struggle, which is that, um, uh, you know, the regime that is being fought against by the people um, is actually a champion of Palestinian rights. And therefore, that makes the Syrian struggle somehow less credible and legitimate. Mm -hmm. And therefore, yeah, uh, that was for me the issue, that that was the uh, fundamental problematic that I tried to challenge or, I've, you know, at least I've spent the first early years of my engagement uh, with the Syrian revolution uh, trying to debunk this narrative by simply uh, questioning the ideological underpinnings of this discourse, which is basically that everything centers around Palestinians and that, you know, because somehow uh, uh, a group of people who are not involved either in the Syrian struggle or in the Palestinian struggle, or they are not particularly a part of it. They might be some sort of um, uh, a global movement that tries to promote these rights. Mm -hmm. But then uh, in their attempt to promote Palestinian rights, uh, they um, sadly, uh, ended up uh, committing the same uh, mistakes and the same injustices against um, other peoples mm -hmm. uh, only because it did not fit with their particular ideological framework and how they viewed the world. Um, so it was just a, you know, a reminder that we need to go back to the basics. The basics are very simple. If you just stick to them, uh, you will be able to navigate the complexity of the geopolitical map of the Middle East or anywhere uh, you go, basically, that people are entitled to uh, express their 
to fight for their freedoms, to mobilize, to, uh, you know, so we talk about all these ideals of sovereignty, of uh, democracy, like I said, of popular uprisings and all that stuff. And then when that happens and it's just right there in front of us, we resort to those mythical who start, you know, creating narratives in order to just somehow make sense of something that does not neatly fit with what we have already preconceived. So that's the issue here. You know, there is a narrative and there is a reality and we just need to reconcile the two. Mm-hmm. And the narrative is that, like I said, um, the Syrian uprising is, is a plot, is a conspiracy and so on and so forth. Uh, again, um, obviously, it's always more nuanced. We understand that there are states, that there are, uh, you know, uh, powers. Uh, and, you know, I do also buy into particular... Uh, you know, I, I don't claim that we know everything, mm-hmm. uh, but we all know that there are, you know, mo- you know, the monarchies in, in the region. We know that Israel is there. We know that, you know, uh, there are all these global powers which um, are invested in um, shaping the map in particular ways. Mm-hmm. But for us as people, I think the concern and the starting point has always to be with the people with what is going on. And from there, we can go upwards and start to uh, make sense of the complexity. But we shouldn't talk down on people and try just to shape reality in a way that just is convenient for us because Mm -hmm. we don't want to challenge ourselves. Absolutely. Um, Your piece at the time really helped me uh, think through some things. It was in the it was in the weeks uh, before the fall of Aleppo, obviously at the end of 2016, and emotions um, among Syrian friends were obviously quite high, to to put it uh, very mildly. At the same time, or at the time actually, I was still trying to engage online with Assadists, and uh, since I'm from Lebanon, especially like with Hezbollah supporters and everything. Uh, which, to be honest, since then I've mostly given up on. I'm trying to focus on other things. But as you know, I mean, as you mentioned here, like part of the big credentials, so to speak, is the what they use as justifications. The whole like the road, the road to Jerusalem passes to Aleppo, whatever the the latest the latest iteration of it is. And in recent, the reason why I wanted to ask you as well, like, how have you seen this? Have you thought about this maybe in the past few years? Whether that's changed or not? Is that in the context of Lebanon? Uh, obviously, we've had the uprising since October and of 2019, and I've started seeing some sort of cracks in the um, this hegemonic narrative that I personally had given up on, just like in seeing. I, I thought that I would just, which is not going to happen. We're not going to see it anytime soon. And what I'm talking about here is the fact that, for example, whereas in previous, before October, essentially. Uh, it was extremely taboo to talk about Syria in the context of Lebanon. It was due, partly due to the, the the history, the Syrian occupation, obviously the the sensitivity of all of this in general, which I no need to get into the details here since there are other episodes that I've done uh, on this specifically. But I started seeing some people uh, from southern Lebanon, some friends of mine who have families that are very close or even members of Hezbollah sort of kind of be a bit more um open about just trying to say that they are supporting if if they want to if basically the narrative would be like if we want to support um our rights here we cannot deny the fact that syrians also have the right to uh defend their own rights in in syria and so this this created a whole lot of questions so i wanted to ask you is 
when in the con so this was in 2016 which is a very specific year uh when it comes to to see in history as i said in in the in the weeks before the the fall of aleppo but since then have you seen this narrative sort of develop into something else or has it really just been the same one and not much change has been done on that front do you think uh that's a good question actually joey but um uh, to be honest um uh, personally i'm not very um I'm not probably as much as involved as I used to be, and I've never been deeply involved uh, mm-hmm. simply because you know I just don't think I have what it takes to constantly follow all this stuff. Uh, sure. It just really doesn't, uh, uh, you know. Um, I rather um, keep, you know, try and follow um, the how this unfolds. But at the same time, I'm aware that it's it can get very toxic, uh, which can you know, directly uh, really um, uh, undermine your general uh, well-being or, or, you know, general, uh, it could, it could really make you feel uh, very, very depressed. So, Absolutely. Um, so. And, you know, and that's, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And I should say that like what you've, what you've been through since 2014, I mean, obviously since before then as well, but especially since 2014, uh, it's something that I actually wanted to get into a bit as well, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, because, and actually, I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you, but in 2014, uh, during the, the war uh, on, on Gaza, uh, I was a volunteer at Global Voices. I, I since became the, uh, the MENA editor uh, until last year. And my uh, focus was entirely on the war on Gaza. And the um, part of the Twitter threads that I was, or the tweets, sorry, the Twitter accounts that I was using back then was yours. And I remember some of those in uh, unfortunately, unfortunately chilling details, which I'm sure for yeah. you was, was like uh, exponentially worse, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk a bit about the, um, I will get to the second essay that you wrote on Homos for Thought in a bit, but can we talk a bit about uh, 2014, uh, obviously, in a- as many details as you feel comfortable, you don't have to get into everything. But how uh, you were trying to document everything that was going on uh, through Twitter, I don't know, maybe on Facebook as well, I don't remember. But how how do you remember that experience and trying to con- trying to confer what you were experiencing to the world through social media at the time? And what you had to endure after that as well as uh, since you left Gaza to do your PhD in Australia at the time that took, of course, which you were talking, which you were telling me uh, in our pre-chat, if you can mention that as well, and the difficulties as well in uh, getting your your wife, who was pregnant at the time, with your with your uh, with your child, uh, out of Gaza as well to join in Australia. Yeah, of course I can talk about all of that. It's just I'm aware that you actually raised a good question, and I don't want to pass up that question because it, sure. I think it uh, yeah, it's crucial um, to address it uh, when you talk about the. Uh, change uh, uh, in narrative uh, or the lack of change in narrative around Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing I would like to remind us all is that um, this particular discourse uh, that we have uh, intro- or sort of um, highlighted uh, at the start mm-hmm. is not particular to Syria no. because we all know that this was also uh, the same segment uh, of uh, the, the left, mm-hmm. the global left. Uh, or particularly the Western left. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is a word that I like to repeatedly uh, uh, emphasize when I uh, try to, um, you know, navigate the, you know, political nuances of um, the region. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and I will explain why, particularly coming from a post-colonial uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, this was the case we know in Bosnia, for example, right? And Absolutely. we know that it was the same elements of the left that uh, continued to um, promulgate uh, that idea or that narrative that, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, not everything that happens in the, you know, in these regions is particularly uh, driven by the need for change, by the need for, uh, you know, um, freedom or democracy or justice or right equality and rights and so on and so forth. It becomes more of a, uh, an issue between uh, global powers, between yeah. states, yeah. where people uh, ultimately dissolve and disappear from the uh, whole uh, picture, they just become uh, ultimately objects, um, objects in the sense that they are uh, either victims or terrorists, to quote uh, someone. They, they mentioned how, for example, um, in order, f- you know, those people uh, stop being actors in the, sense, in the sense that they become perceived as uh, incapable of creating change. And if they do prove that they are capable of creating that change, uh, then, like I said, if that, like, ha- like what happened in Syria with the revolution, like what's happened in, uh, 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 across the Arab world, uh, when that revolution is not in line with the ideological worldview of these people, then that change becomes labeled as terrorist or as a conspiracy and so on and so forth. Mm. Because these people have proven that they are capable of creating change. So on the one hand, we are victims. We just need sympathy. We just need support. We just need help. But when we actually take action and prove that we're capable of making change, then like, like what's happening in Syria and like what's happening in Gaza. So let's not forget Gaza because all of this happened first in Gaza in 2006. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The irony is when it happened in Gaza, when people voted in Gaza, right? The first democratic experience in the, in the Middle East, everybody talks about it in those terms. Mm-hmm. We voted wrong. We voted Hamas into power. Mm-hmm. But we still did, you know, we still created history. You know, we actually, because we're always told, you know, Orientals, the people in the Middle East, right? That's what we called. Uh, we are somewhat uh, uh, less. Uh, capable of, uh, you know, uh, constructing our societies in a free democratic way, because that's the ideal model, the universal model that everybody's got to follow. Mm-hmm. But when we actually did that, we were punished because, again, we didn't do it. Um, yes, we followed the procedures and all that, but somewhat, somehow the outcome wasn't uh, consistent with the interests of you know, the dominant powers in the region and more globally. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Palestine, in the case of Gaza, uh, we know that the uh, reaction was globally, uh, you know, unanimous in its opposition to Hamas, mm-hmm. right? So we, and we are still being punished for that. Uh, I don't know, fast forward, how probably 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Now, the, on the other hand, in Syria, the people did 
also take action. The people did actually uh, drive change. They, you know, like in Egypt, like in Tunisia, like everywhere. Yeah. But again, the issue is that this change was not also in line with the particular worldview of particular segment of the left. So in the case of Palestine, it wasn't the left. The left was, we know, wholeheartedly behind the Palestinian struggle and still is. Mm -hmm. But my question now, what does that tell me? What motivates the leftist support for Palestinians? Hmm? Mm -hmm. If they fail to provide the same support for Syrians, it clearly, there is something unique about the Palestinian case that allows everyone to converge around them mm-hmm. and support them. But it probably not because they are Palestinians and worthy of freedom. It could be because of something else that we have to make sense of. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm trying to make sense of that. Why is it easy to support Palestinians, but so hard to support Syrians for mm-hmm. these people? So I'm talking here from that perspective. But what this brings me back to is the point here about how the distinction which you uh, raised between the left and the right becomes almost obsolete from the perspective of the colonial subjects, from the perspective of, of a Palestinian or a Syrian. Because if the left has failed to support Syrians and has used the Palestinians in order to undermine their struggle, um, uh, like you know, they have failed to support uh, you know, uh, people in Bosnia, uh, like their stance in, you know, towards the Khmer Rogue and all those. Um, so there is a consistent failure uh, within the left. And obviously, uh, when you challenge that, uh, somehow uh, there is um, uh, an arcane resemblance between the left and the right in the way they treat the people that they are supposed to uh, be in solidarity with. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm here referring to racism and privilege in particular, the way they try to undermine and oppress these people, not necessarily politically, but at least ideologically and in terms of their discourse, in terms of how, for example, people like, you know, yourself, Joey, um, you come from a a place like, you know, from Lebanon, you have all these experiences, you know, but at the same time, because you're able to articulate yourself in particular ways in order to promote um, uh, a social justice narrative in the region mm-hmm. that challenges the worldview of these people, you become a hostile enemy mm-hmm. in the eyes of these people who are supposed to be, for example, in solidarity with these with the region. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not the region that they care about, or it's not really Palestinians. That's how I see things. Um, it's it's a warped worldview that they are uh, invested in sustaining by any means necessary. So if that means we, you know, fabricate stories, uh, we call the white helmets terrorists, we do whatever we want, they will do whatever it takes, in my opinion, in order to spread that narrative. Of course, they will create their own, you know, they will say facts, our facts show us this, facts and data, evidence, and everybody's fighting about evidence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a futile effort. I'm not saying there are there is no evidence, there are no facts, but I'm saying there are facts and these facts will always be distorted and used in particular ways to support different narratives. Mm-hmm. Now, that's why for us, we need to go back to the starting point. What is this about? It's about the Syrian people, right? They have decided, you know, or the revolution started 
had it been anywhere else, we wouldn't have an issue. We would have all supported the people like we supported the people in Egypt, in Tunisia, but in Syria in particular, they have failed to do that. And of course, their issue is that it's because of, you know, the relationship between Syria and Palestine and, you know, the role that Israel, so always, you know, Israel is the okey man, uh, you know, uh, and that somehow the failure of the Syrian regime is going to make things worse for Palestinians, <laughs> which is ludicrous. Um, you know, what is, um, whether Assad stays or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, perishes really has no bearing on the relationship between Israel and uh, Palestine, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, to cut a long story short, the narrative, uh, whether it has changed or not, is really not, doesn't, it's not just about Syria. It's a narrative that is so constant and it has been going on for, you know, um, decades. Um, and it just tells us something about the relationship between, in my opinion, between the West and the non-West. And it tells us something about the colonial interaction. So it's not just about Syria, in my opinion, or Palestine or uh, particular states. It's about, uh, in at least uh, as how I see things, it's about the interaction between uh, the West and the non-West. Uh, yeah, which again, we see manifestations of this when we talk about uh, Black Lives Matters as well. When we talk about all these things, it's a global struggle yeah. uh, that is historically grounded in, uh, you know, all the colonial uh, experiences that um, uh, occurred over the past uh, few centuries and which we, you know, what, hap what we live today is basically uh, a continuation or uh, an outcome or a consequence of and has to be seen in continuity with that history rather than in separation from it. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a very good point. Very good point. Thanks for expanding on that. I completely agree, obviously. And as I said, this is something that I've been struggling with and it got to the point where I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too proud of saying this, to be honest, but I got to the point where at some point I stopped saying that I'm part Palestinian because my grandfather is from Haifa. Uh, and it just got to the point where it was in 2015, 2016. And I was very close to a friend who's at SOAS, who's a Palestinian from Yarmouk, so a Palestinian Syrian from Yarmouk refugee camp in Syria. And he had been going through a lot, a lot of difficulties being openly Palestinian online and being openly Syrian at the same time from various groups. Uh, if it's in Arabic, you know, he might get some of the more, um, what we might call like Shabiha types. If it's uh, in English, then it's more like the Western quote-unquote anti-imperialist, leftist, tankies, whatever we want to call them types. And yeah, it just got to the point where obviously I would never deny it. If anyone talks to me and asks me, I would just say there was ne there was there's never been any shame associated with that, uh, as far as I was concerned. But I kind of took a step back in a sense online. It wasn't something that I was comfortable uh, saying because uh, already as a Lebanese talking about Syria, you, you might have some nuances that can be lost because people just think that you have other mot motives. Uh, so to have both a Palestinian Lebanese, let's say, or Lebanese Palestinian, uh, talking about uh, consist consistently opposing uh, what Israel was doing in Gaza, for example, in 2014, as I said, in, the, in that context, 
and then the year later, or two, uh, 2015, 2016, talking more about uh, Eastern Ghouta at the time, or obviously Halab, Aleppo, and so on. It just put me in this very weird positions where I kept on clashing with random groups that sometimes found commonalities with one another and sometimes not. So as you mentioned before, like um, there's a lot of toxicity involved with all of this. And uh, yeah, I had to take a step back in a sense uh, before getting back into it more comfortably later on, I guess. If we can talk a bit about uh, your journey from 2014, leaving Gaza, going to Australia, the difficulties in leaving Gaza in the first place, how, how long that took, and the difficulties you had in trying to bring over your wife as well, who was pregnant at the time with your firstborn. And yeah, if we can just talk a bit about this for those who don't know how difficult it can actually be. Yes, of course. Um, so um, I left Gaza in uh, April 2015 and came here to South Australia to do my PhD. And um, uh, at the time I got, you know, all my uh, papers, all sort of, you know, my visa, my documentation. Uh, I quit my job and so did my wife, uh, Leila. And um, we were preparing to leave. We, you know, um, if you live in Gaza, you don't just leave. You have to um, plan. Like there is almost at least um, a couple months, uh, depending on the uh, general um, political uh, situation. But mm -hmm. it could take uh, sometimes um, a year. Uh, a lot of people just uh, end up, um, you know, not leaving, just uh, not being able to go uh, get treatment in uh, for example hospitals outside of gaza um, students miss out on their scholarships um, on their uh, grants and um, so um, it's all uh, you know for a lack of a better word precarious which is um, yeah such an understatement but uh, for me, uh, I got all my papers. I started planning to leave. Um, I couldn't, uh, obviously, because um, at the time, it was just right after the end of the Israeli assault in 2014. And, um, you know, if you want to leave Gaza, there is two ways um, you can leave, uh, either through uh, the north, um, uh, through the areas crossing with mm -hmm. uh, Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, uh, you know, uh, in the north of Gaza and you can apply for a special permit uh, with the Israeli authorities through the Palestinian Civil Administration. Uh, and if you get that permit, uh, then you get to, uh, you get a sort of um, a day, uh, like one day visa, like it's not, a, it's like, a you know, uh, just um, like a, a pass. passer, yeah. By, yeah, just to pass through Israel and get to, to uh, the West Bank, uh, and then you can cross from the West Bank to uh, into Jordan. Mm -hmm. uh, so even if you want to do that, you also have to apply for a permit with the Jordanian authorities. Uh, we call it Adam Mumana, as in like they don't mind you passing through their territory, <laughs> which is what I'm saying. Like how this is how a Palestinian is treated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, as a, it's a, yeah, it's a scandal to be a Palestinian, yeah. um, or you know, in the political sense, it's like you're unwelcome anywhere. Mm -hmm. And now I applied for that permit. Uh, at the time, we were pregnant with Adam, who's now five years, mm -hmm. and um, we quit our jobs. We, uh, you know, we just wanted to leave. Um, 
to come here and we couldn't because we got uh, normally these permits as well it's because it's very bureaucratized there are always tens of thousands of permits yeah. at any one time that are being applied for and processed so it's just a complete uh, state of uncertainty uh, there's nothing um, that you can uh, bank on like you can't plan so we got um, you know uh, a rejection you know rejections like we applied three times each time we would you know it would take a month or two and then you get a rejection and at the same time we were trying to cross uh, through the south so that's the other exit uh, with uh, the you know the crossing with Egypt through the Sinai desert uh, and that because at the time it was just uh, in the wake of the CC coup, uh, the military coup in uh, Egypt. So they were just still cracking down on Hamas, uh, and they were um, they have just uh, at the time they had just um, shut the border completely, the crossing, the Rafah crossing, mm -hmm. and they also. Um, were in, you know, destroying the tunnels which were operating uh, for a couple of years uh, while uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, Morsi, were in power. Yeah, yeah. So we couldn't uh, get uh, through either, and we were stuck uh, eventually. And just or you know, out of the blue, I we stepped up our efforts, uh, and I got a permit to leave. Uh, but that um, Layla. Uh, was denied a permit, so I left on my own, and I left Layla behind, um, and I came here through Ares, a very traumatic journey, because it was the first time for me to actually go to the West Bank, uh, not go, because I didn't go there, I just passed, you passed yeah. so it really were like three hours, and obviously, um, so that, that's the only time I actually stepped foot uh, <laughs> in the West Bank and in, you know, you go to Jerusalem as well. Uh, some of us were like students who wanted to, you know, because that was the first time they go to Jerusalem, they wanted to see the city. I was like, I don't think we have time to do anything. We'd better just, you know, go straight to the um, uh, crossing. Some of, that, some of us actually did, um, because it, again, like it's not something as a passing from Gaza that, you know, that's one in a lifetime opportunity. Um, and, you know, obviously also, uh, you know, uh, the terminal with Jordan as well, you get interrogated. Uh, some of us were turned back even after, like we were actually the last people to leave the areas crossing. So like, like I said, it's very, very um, dehumanizing, very uh, humiliating. Um, it's not befitting, you know, of um, a human being to be treated regardless, you know, for me, like if you just want to, again look at it very simply it's just there's something fundamentally um yeah problematic about this entire setup mm -hmm. uh, and that's what i'm saying these are the injustices that people don't are still unable to talk about yeah. it's not just about yeah of course bombing destruction death but uh the control the level of control that the israelis exert over palestinian life is ubiquitous it's it's just thorough and absolute. Mm -hmm. They have absolute control over every uh, aspect of your life. And then we got here. Uh, Layla, luckily for her, after a couple of months, uh, got a, uh, managed to uh, get out through the Rafah crossing. So that's the crossing with uh, Egypt. 
obviously uh, the Egyptian military at the time were fighting uh, or trying to you know uh, combat the ISIS uh, you know offshoots mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. Sinai desert mm -hmm. so there was a lot of uh, shooting going on um, yeah it wasn't a safe journey it was uh, yeah very dangerous but eventually you know you have to if you go through Egypt you have to take a ride for that goes for like nine hours until you get to the Cairo International Airport that's that's literally any person from Gaza that that wants to travel out of Gaza they have to go this way or that way so it that's how yeah. uh, it works yeah that's the you know when people talk about uh, Gaza being a prison uh, it's not a metaphor it yeah. actually is a literal description yeah yeah so yeah um, and we're here now well alhamdulillah at least <laughs> yeah exactly uh, you mentioned the system of control being ubiquitous of the, the Israeli occupation. The, you wrote this other essay, um, what was it, in 2017, I think, uh, which is called Israel and the Right to Maim. Uh, let, let's get into this a bit because when, so you, when you, you wrote this essay, to, it's also published on Homes for Thought. All, all of these things, I'll link them in the, in the description, obviously. Um, it's about the, the Israeli practice of purposefully maiming Palestinians, uh, especially in Gaza, but not just in Gaza. It was written, if I remember well, shortly after the murder of Ibrahim Abu Thurayya by, yes. by Israeli forces, and that was in December 2017. Mm -hmm. And his story is particularly gruesome because he was already a double amputee uh, since 2008, since the war in 2008, the, the, the bombings in 2008. We, you mentioned this point, you mentioned this argument, and I'll let you get into it a bit, uh, that we don't, usually, actually, we don't know much about um, Palestinians who are quote-unquote just injured. It ends up being a, I mean, since the numbers are obviously significantly larger than the numbers of killed, which are themselves fairly high in most in most of the, the bombardments or the wars uh, by the Israeli government, we end up sort of kind of not focusing on it as much. Um, and there was this book that I'm sure you can, you can talk about a bit more. I haven't actually read it uh, yet, unfortunately. But I think if I'm not mistaken in that book, uh, they also go into the example of Kashmir because that, ha that, that happens in Kashmir quite a lot as well by the Indian army. The, this uh, quote-unquote right to maim, it's obviously obviously put in quotations, um, is it like just complementary to the, again, quote-unquote right to kill? Is it an inherent component of uh, colonial logic, colonial dominance? And is it just as important? And uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, these are too many questions at the same time anyway, but like yeah. why, why um, everything I just asked at this end as well, why is it not thought about as much as let's say, for example, something as more direct as murder. Yes, um, yeah, um, just flagging up that, you know, this right to maim is actually a book uh, written by um, Jasper uh, Poor, um, published by uh, Duke University Press. So I was merely, I was merely, <laughs> okay, Adam, I'm engaged in something like that. Okay, I'll fix it later. Sorry, Joey. No worries. Thank you. 
um so we were talking about yeah this book and okay. i was merely trying to um yeah um just sort of promote it in a way um and uh, it's a thorough study of uh, the israeli army's um practices uh, and uh, it does like you mentioned um uh, sort of um draw our attention to something that probably prior to this we have we've all known but we've never really um talked about um or uh, adequately emphasized and try to um you know understand the dangers of this sort of practice in terms of how we tend to think that it's natural that um, you know there will be a huge discrepancy between how many people are um, murdered and how are uh, maimed or injured Right, but then yeah. we didn't understand that this was actually a deliberate policy. That's yeah. the key point here. It's not because for us, we would assume that, you know, uh, an, an Israeli F-16 would, uh, you know, drop um, a bomb and then, you know, then some people will die and others will be injured. And it just, this is a natural discrepancy. But when you think about the uh, Israeli, you know, when you read that book and uh, start actually observing more closely uh, the logic uh, of the right to maim and how Israel actually uh, and the Israeli the, uh, army uh, embraces and embodies that uh, um, practice in terms of how it deliberately um, attempts and intends to, um, um, in a way, um, injure or uh, inflict as much damage upon Palestinians, you know, as mm -hmm, possible, mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. if that means um, just shooting to maim. Uh, in that regard, uh, the story of um, Abu Thuraya is uh, very symbolic because, you know, uh, this, you know, like you say, uh, he was a double uh, amputee. And that was the first where, for example, maybe in that instance, that injury was coincidental. It wasn't deliberate. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I'm, I'm here just speaking hypothetically. So if in 2008, he was uh, amputated because of a bomb, which was the case mm -hmm. here, uh, that, you know, Israel in no way intended to maybe, you know, they just dropped the bomb and then he got, you know, they didn't know that there was a person called Abu Thraya and, you know, we were just sure, sure. trying to beam it. So that was, a, you know, not planned but then that's the you know natural outcome of the israeli policy uh fast forward um you know uh, 10 or 11 years mm -hmm. and then he's engaged in this uh, protest uh, along the uh, buffer zone uh, with israel and then we see how um he is uh, basically uh, shot dead uh and now why? For me, obviously, I'm reading into this and I'm saying here, um, first, we shoot to maim. That's always the aim uh, because we want to, obviously, the idea that people who are injured uh, endure less suffering than those who are murdered is here nonsensical. It just doesn't make sense because we tend to focus on how many people are killed, like, yeah, you know, yeah, we yeah. just said. And we forget that, you know, in on almost a daily basis, there are uh, injuries that are inflicted upon the Palestinians by the Israeli army. Now, these injuries uh, have permanent uh, 
consequences on the on the victims. It's not like, you know, that's why we're talking here, like the right to maim, but the subtitle of that book was debility, capacity, and disability. Mm-hmm. And here we talk about a distinction between disability, which is, you know, is, which is different from debility. Where I, when we talk about disability, you know, people with disabilities and all that, it, it's more of, more of a generic term sure, to yeah. describe, you know, whereas debility it becomes the... In, uh, something that is inflicted with uh, upon the victim with intention, so it becomes more more of a policy, more of an ideology, more of something that you know. Um, there is something unique about uh, the disability of a Palestinian victim of an Israeli shooting than the dis- a natural disability of you know. Mm-hmm. Now, and that uniqueness needed to be communicated, in my opinion, because we can't just lump all these people like you know. I don't know the figures, but there are definitely tens of thousands of disabilities that have been inflicted upon Palis- uh, the Palestinians by the Israeli army over the past years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we needed some, uh, someone to be able to articulate that to us and communicate to us the uh, cruelty and the brutality of the Israeli interaction with the Palestinians and how it's not just simply about controlling them and uh, killing them, it's uh, as ubiquitous as that, you know, they decide, for example, to shoot in the right arm, in the left arm, in the, and then these stories will go unnoticed because it's just another injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would assume that it's, uh, you, know, um, it, you know, they couldn't shoot them in the head. They couldn't kill them. It just ended up in their arm. What if, in fact, that was the intention to shoot in the arm, to shoot to maim in the first place? You know, and I think that's what's going on here. That's why, you know, all these protests um, uh, along the Green Line, um, there is always, you know, as a Palestinian, um, probably you can also relate uh, if you live in uh, a volatile area like this, where there's always confrontations with um, soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how, this is how I grew up. Like, people go there to protest and throw stones. And there's always, you know, people get injured. And we always thought, oh, you're lucky, you know, that you just injured, that, you mm-hmm. know, you were shot in the head. But in fact, that now seems to have always been the logic of the Israeli state, which is to inflict as much debility. Because, you know, eventually, again, there is no difference between the uh, debility of a person, of an individual in Gaza, and the overarching debility that the entire Gazan population has uh, had to endure because you know mm-hmm. you have to see those in continuity with each other because then like i said when i described my story of how i left gaza it seems that this is also a story of debility a story of somebody who is deprived of any ability to take any action to you know because yeah. i can't do, I, i'm not in control here i can't do anything um uh, i'm just an object that's being controlled by those powers so i'm deprived of uh, my agency of my ability to take action. And therefore, you know, there is uh, here uh, a close resemblance between de- physical debility and existential debility mm. to be somewhat philosophical about it. <laughs> no, that's a very good point. Um, Hamad, I have two more questions, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine, yeah. Okay. As far as Adam doesn't interrupt us. <laughs> uh, he can make a small cameo, it's okay. Um, <laughs> One, so one question I had was related to uh, tweets that you sent out at some point uh, 
I don't remember when they sent them out, but I will quote them here and then I'll, I'll try and formulate a, a proper question. So the first is, the left have failed, but more crucially, Britain and the West have become provincialized. For in the triumph in the forces of reaction and ethno-nationalism, the university claims of the West have been bellied. Hence, the yes. need for a politics out of and beyond the right and left. And then the second one is you know, along the same lines, but I'll read it anyway. Those who truly care about justice and emancipation ought to be reminded there remains a possibility of politics beyond that of the right and left, beyond the West. A politics where the fate of global minorities does not hinge on the goodwill or malice of Western political elites. And I found that very interesting. In the, and uh, the reason I'm, I'm putting it, I'm placing it in the context of everything we just spoke about as well, is that well, we, we spoke a bit about the, the wider failures of the global left, and you know we don't necessarily need to repeat that. But I'm very curious as to, uh, you know, to, to the extent that you can, this, it, it will be abstract, obviously, by, by definition, it will be abstract, probably not easy to think about. But what does a politics uh, out of and beyond, let's say, the right and left, uh, beyond the West, beyond these binaries, essentially, that uh, usually from the looks of it don't actually seem to be, excuse me, don't actually seem to be doing much good uh, on the ground. What can that look like? Okay, that's, um, I'm not sure if I'm able to actually give a, a clear answer to this question. No, um, I, think, I think by definition, it will not be clear because it's not possible. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's hard to really imagine yes. alternatives. But uh, it's, you know, at least we have to start by challenging uh, the, um, again, the hegemonic uh, discourse around us that tells us this is all you've got. It has to be this or that. But when neither this nor that works for me, obviously I have to start and envision a new way, uh, a new um, politics. Uh, because again, if the right has, you know, uh, has defined me as the enemy, uh, you know, whether as a Muslim or as a Palestinian from Gaza or as, a, as an Arab or as an immigrant or as anything, I'm, you know, always the other. Mm -hmm. So clearly for those, for this element, which is very uh, influential, as we have seen, um, mm -hmm. you know, over the past few years, there I cle I'm clearly, um, uh, there are no allies uh, for me. And therefore, I need to revert to the left. But then, you know, the story is no, um, you know, it's probably, it could, it might have worked for me. Um, you know, mm -hmm. when, you, when I was first starting to understand the global discourse around Israel-Palestine, but then we realized that there is more to it than just um, uh, being, than just solidarity with the Palestinians. And we know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not here like questioning any particular individuals. I have absolutely no one in mind because mm -hmm. I'm just not interested really. I'm interested in discourses, uh, I'm not interested in particular people. Mm -hmm. um, we have realized that this discourse is uh, no less um, um, dangerous mm -hmm. than uh, that of the right, yeah. in my opinion. And I stand by that uh, very firmly. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I'm not beholden to anyone to, agree to either have to uh, uh, ally myself with the right or the left, you know. I don't mm -hmm. see that this, I'm, I'm obligated to do that. Or I have, you know, some people sometimes 
when I, you know, this is very interesting when you come to Australia because you start observing these things as well at a much more pronounced scale, because I think, you know, there is more awareness in particular parts of, you know, for example, in, in London, where, you know, I lived for a year, there is more um, uh, the sort of political landscape uh, and the solidarity landscape is much more nuanced. Sure, Whereas yeah. here, you see that it's absolutely uh, dichotomized between right and left. And then when you interact with the left, you realize how very uh, deeply conservative uh, many of them can be. Yeah. Um, and then how, for example, like you're supposed to always um, play, play victim and uh, always uh, show gratitude. And I've actually been asked to show gratitude uh, for people who, because they uh, somehow work hard to save me uh, and, Yes, uh, it's serious. Uh, it's it's true. Like this is this actually happens. Yeah, it actually happens. And then this only leaves you wondering. I really don't understand what the distinction between right and left is supposed to signify. Now I'm talking here from my perspective. Now I understand that you know the rich and the poor, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, and we understand all these things. It it makes sense within the particular societies within a particular context. But to try and project this globally and say that the entire world, you know, that for example, Palestine is a struggle of the, you know, workers. Isn't Syria the struggle of workers? No, it's not. It's a conspiracy. That's what I'm saying here. It becomes illogical. It's just not, um, I, it's, it's me in English. I can't buy into this. So this obviously leaves me disenchanted with both. Uh, obviously, we saw Corbyn. We saw, um, you know, the, I mean, you, you're deeply familiar with this probably oh, yeah. yeah so once again um that means the right and the left distinction becomes uh, superfluous the, that means okay we need to envision a new way uh, for the victims of imperialism and that's what i'm again uh, i speak from a subaltern perspective i speak mm -hmm. from my perspective that's the only perspective i can speak from the only problem is that some people think that they can speak of from a universal perspective, a perspective that applies to everyone. And I find that flawed and problematic because uh, these people somehow see themselves as standing on some morally universal ground that they, you know, and if they fail to see their own limitations. So I'm in no way to dictate to others what's best for them. But looking at it from the perspective of a subaltern, from my perspective as a Palestinian, but also from the perspective of people uh, who suffered the woes of uh, American and European uh, colonialism and imperialism in the Middle East and uh, in the global South more broadly. Mm -hmm. I don't see that, you know, right and left really makes much difference for us. Uh, in Syria, we have seen that. In Egypt, we have seen that. Um, in, yes, we have seen that in Egypt, probably to a lesser extent, but we've mm -hmm. seen it everywhere. Um, and therefore, okay, we need a new way. Now, one way to talk about that, obviously, uh, I might have to be a little bit more academic about it, but simply to start envisioning a world order that is not um, fully uh, based on the supremacy of one global superpower. Sure. Again, so we need uh, a multipolar polar world um, where, um, because I believe in power, I mean, if, any, if I've learned anything from the experiences that I've had in my life, you need power. Mm -hmm. um, because Not because it's good to have power, because that's how the world works. Uh, and when I talk about power, I, I mean power uh, for political representation, 
Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm not represented. I'm stateless. I'm not a citizen of any country. So I see it as rather uh, quite self-evident that I would like some form of self-representation that I, would, I don't want just to be spoken on behalf of. I don't want just to be a victim. I'd like yeah. my people and all victims to have some sort of representation. It seems to me that the world is absolutely unequal in the way it is divided into first, second, and third. And obviously that's not just uh, in terms of uh, economic and material access to opportunities, but also um, just the very fact that my life is uh, worth more, uh, is more valuable just because I don't live in Gaza anymore. Mm. It just, you know, it tells me so much about the world order and how some lives are more valued, automatically more valued than others, just depending on your um, locality. So if you're Palestinian and you die, just a number, it doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, we might feel sorry and sad, but that's it. But I'm sorry, a person died, a family is shattered, you know, uh, all this. Okay, we just, you know, uh, protest. That's not enough for me. I'm beyond this. Um, or when somebody says, like, you know, all these stories that we know, um, like you mentioned Kashmir. Um, um, so it's not just about, obviously, Arabs as well, in my opinion. Of course. Uh, or obviously we have to talk about Iraq as well. And um, uh, we can't really name every context, but the issue here is that we need some form of political representation. And I feel that the world order uh, as it stands, where you know the very idea of global, uh, global governance for me is meaningless, just to put it very bluntly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a form of administering those differences in a way that ultimately is uh, designed to ensure the best for, you know, the West. Yeah. You know, eventually, what is a security council that is made of the U.S. that has a veto power or Russia that has a veto power? And there is no form of representation for any of the colonial subjects or the, you know, formerly colonial, like, you know, why? How, how equal is this? So we try and say it's global governance, but I look at the structure of the Security Council. It's just utterly political. And therefore, we try and say it's no longer about, uh, you know, uh, this is just about human rights. Yes, but I mean, we say people have human rights. Do they? I mean, we ideals are great that people should have human rights. That's wonderful. We all agree on that. Mm -hmm. The question is, do people have human rights? Mm -hmm. I don't want to say people, all people. And obviously the answer is a definite no. So that means we have to, uh, um, um, basically I've, I have no faith in the, world order, uh, in the world order as it exists. I'm not saying I think it will change or it can change, but at least the least we can do is advocate or start to envision, start to talk about this as this is the real issue, the fundamental issue here. Um, that the, you know, we've been told, you know, we're no longer going to have to fight. We're no longer going to have, you know, it's just post-political age, they called it, the end of politics. Uh, just all get together, form a global governance, um, uh, you know, United Nations, uh, you know, the World Health Organization, the World Labour Organization, all these beautiful things that we were told this is how it's going to be. Mm -hmm. But then we have realized that this is ultimately just... Um, another way to continue to practice, uh, to continue to dominate and uh, exercise control over the world population. Mm -hmm. I'm not finishing. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
<laughs> we're almost done. Okay, all right, I finished. I think we're finishing now. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. Um, the last question is uh, going back a bit more on the personal side. I'm, you know, I'm I'm speaking to you from Geneva, so I'm only just one hour behind uh, Lebanon, and already some, not sometimes, quite a lot of the times, I struggle because I'm not there. So I I have this need to be physically there, even though I can be totally useless if I'm there. But just it, it's just this instinct that I need to be there, try and be useful, help out the family. My most of my family is still back home. Uh, obviously, in the the context of the economic crisis and the COVID nineteen crisis, it's just it's kind of created a sort of a per perfect storm right now in Lebanon. Um, so my question to you is more: You've left now. It's been over five years, more or less. Uh, I think you mentioned that you haven't uh, traveled, so you haven't left Australia. How have you managed to deal with the fact that you're so far from home right now and for so long? Um, there's just no other way. There's no other. Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, that's the only thing that's available to me. Um, as I mentioned, Joey, it's not easy, obviously, um, being far away from home. Uh, but yeah. On the other hand, um, you know, going back to Gaza is not really an option, um, given that since I left, if anything, uh, things have just gotten much worse. Yeah. Uh, and I mean that like, it's it always gets worse, but it has gotten to a point that even I can't imagine what it would be like if I go back to Gaza. Mm. Uh, because yeah it's always just been uh, going um um in a tragic um you know like the stories that i've heard for example like yeah there hasn't been a major i mean there were like a couple of um sporadic uh, you know sort of so-called escalations but um um there's just no you can't really see um a future uh in gaza like it's really hard like people live just uh for the day um yeah. so um yeah despite the fact that i have family and um my whole life is back home um, um it just it would be literally like committing suicide uh if somebody you know decides to go back to gaza because you're just again turning yourself into the again uh turning in like you're going back to prison willingly and um it's not that you can't you will probably live and have a nice life but the issue is that you will be absolutely powerless you will have absolutely no um ability to exercise any agency to say anything or you know like i just can't imagine how you know unless you want to be turned into a passive object that is again um incapable of creating any change I, I understand like a lot of people do that you know obviously you know if you're there it's a different story because you just have to accept that you're there and therefore you have to do the best you could do and that's what a lot of a lot of people have been doing and you know for me that's the real struggle like you know um yeah i understand all the solidarity all the you know uh, movements and all that but the real struggle is the real people who just exist on the ground this is like the continuity of life itself is the most powerful uh, declaration of existence 
the fact that people continue to live, the fact that continue people people continue to celebrate uh, Eid, for example, uh, they get together, uh, they do things. So there is life. Life continues, and that for me is the real struggle. Uh, the fact that people Palestinians will always exist no matter what. Mm-hmm. There is no way. Just you know, for me, and that's also uh, the. Um, you know, the relief that one gets, like, despite everything, despite all the suffering, we just know that we are always going to be here. Palestinians are always going to be there because what are you going to do, exterminate them? I mean, the Israel has tried to exterminate them, but just, you know, you have two million people. Mm-hmm. It's sad because our lives, you know, uh, like I said, are not very uh, valuable uh, or valued um, in terms of, um, you know, Almost every day, a Palestinian loses their lives, you know, um, um, and not much really happens. Like all these lives could be saved. And but the point again is that this is a struggle. This is a struggle for existence, and that is for me where the real conversation should take place. So, and that's where also, if you want to bring it back to to the left and to solidarity, that's where I think these people don't get it. Like. Yes, what you do is great, it's wonderful, but you have to understand that the real liberation, the real struggle is always there on the ground. It's the people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, uh, I hear some people like, oh, you know, uh, America should do this or Iran should do that. Yes, that's all great. But ultimately, it's the Palestinian people themselves that are enacting that struggle. It's not Iran, you know, it's not America, it's not Turkey. It's the Palestinian people. Um, and yeah, for me, um, I, you know, we're Palestinian. Our identity will always um, continue to exist. There is no way you can obliterate history or um, our existence as a people. Yes, maybe we don't have a state. Yes, uh, we don't have um, uh, autonomy or sovereignty, but we exist because we know who we are. We know our history. So, even if you, uh, you know, my son was born in Australia, he's five years, he, we already, you know, talk yeah. about Palestine, talk about Gaza, talk about history, uh, inculcate our existence. Uh, and that is something that you cannot defeat. Mm-hmm. How can you defeat that? You know, so we can talk about solutions, we can talk about everything, but ultimately that's where it all lies, you know. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, we just accept that this is how it's going to be for Palestinians and everybody who, you know, um, understands that they just do their best in order to uh, stay true to the uh, people, to their um, struggle, to their um, yeah, demands for, you know, that's, you know, that's why we also find it hard to be uh, committed to one narrative, you know, and that's why it's easy in my opinion, for somebody uh, like for a Palestinian or, you know, uh, somebody like you, for example, mm-hmm. to be able to identify with different struggles so easily, you know, mm-hmm. we don't, find, we don't, we're not challenged by an alternative worldview. Uh, and that's the, the issue. Like, whereas someone if, who is not really um, immersed uh, in those struggles and they just, for them, is probably uh, something that they want to, engage with which is wonderful uh to be able to engage and be active and understand how the world works and you know try to uh, do the right thing 
but also always understand your limitations and understand that uh, your positionality in comparison to those people, uh, to the people that you want to uh, show solidarity, you know, be in solidarity with uh, or something like that. So uh, again, it's, um, it's a fine line. Um, yeah, between uh, saying um, I support Palestinians and trying to speak on behalf of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So, yes, just knowing your limit. And I see a lot of people just make careers out of that. But again, I understand that a lot of people are genuinely motivated, but I also have suspicions about, not about the people, but about the motives and about the consequences of this form. So it becomes Palestinians ultimately in, the, in, this, in this ongoing conversation, like I said, they're objects. They don't talk like, you know, most of what's going on, Palestinians don't actually have a voice. Mm. And of course, when we talk about Palestinians, which Palestinians as well are we talking about? Are we talking about refugees? Mm -hmm. Are we talking about people in Gaza and the West Bank? Are we talking about people in the refugee camps in Yarmouk, in Syria and Lebanon? Mm -hmm. Or are we talking about uh, third generation refugees uh, all over the world? Uh, which is, again, all of them are pa equally Palestinian, mm -hmm. but whose voices? Uh, yeah. So these are all questions that we need always to think about. And I think it's important that, you know, uh, people like you, Joey, like, you know, those podcasts, I think that's really important to, to do, um, to raise as much awareness of these, you know, issues as possible. Well, on, on that note, Muhammad, thank you a lot for your time. No worries, Joey. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you. Same here.